You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. So, Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 7. Here's what Paul says. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So this is the Word of God for the people of God this morning. Uh, Would you please pray with me? Father, I thank you for your Word. And I thank you for the privilege of preaching your word. And I pray, Father, this morning that you would come and do the impossible through me as I preach. That you would take the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and that you would cause them to be acceptable in your sight and helpful for your people. I pray, God, that you would lead us to the foot of the bloody cross, to the doorway of an empty tomb, and give us once again the hope of heaven help us to find our shelter in your presence in jesus name amen 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 so uh when i first began studying this text this this last week i kind of had to chuckle a little bit um uh, actually laughed just a little bit as i uh studied it um i chuckled a little bit because i could feel the unique provision of the Lord in studying this text, especially in uh, this particular season, right? This season that we're living through, 2020, uh, has been hailed even in in recent weeks uh, by many as the most polarized election year in all of history, whether that's true or not. Uh, It's definitely uh, one of the most polarized election years, at least I think in my history. it's been a year of uh, what I think would be called historic uh, division in our country uh, around all sorts of subjects. Um, most recently, obviously, for us, you got COVID-19, you got the mask conversation, um, and that's just to name two. We've had all sorts of social unrest in our country um, throughout the year, and racial unrest in our country throughout the year as well. I also would say that I chuckled a little bit um, as I looked at this passage, um, j- just in light of my own introduction and the theme and the tone of last week's sermon, if you haven't heard it, um, not that I'm all that great, but just the tone and the theme of that and the introduction to that sermon last week, I'm sure you can go down on our page and, and find that. Um, you know, in summary, my, some of my tone, some of the introduction, some of the theme from last week, um, I would say this way, I, I really am kind of a fighter, um, kind of love a good argument and a good debate. I, I, I love to get the win 
Um, I love to get the W, right? Um, which is hard for all of us who love the Huskers because they weren't able to play this week. Um, I love the W. I love the win. But, but the reality is this. The gospel redefines the W for believers. Redefines it in, in the shadow of the cross in the doorway of the empty tomb and in light of the hope of heaven. So, uh, in light of those two things, the uh, current season um, that we're living through and last week's um, intro to the sermon and theme of it, I really did chuckle a bit um, and laugh a little bit as I began to study this text. And then I, I sent a, a corresponding text out to our elder team <laughs> with some initial thoughts uh, that I'm going to work through um, in the course of this message. But I do, I do find it to be supernaturally uh, providential um, that we are here in this text today um, because it's a text that addresses the issue of disagreement and division in the church. Before I um, I dive into the text, I want to try to set the stage a little bit. Uh, I want to draw your attention to something that I have stated often throughout this uh, series. Uh, What I've often uh, attempted to draw your attention to throughout this series are basically the main issues uh, of of this letter and and the remedies to those issues. And then what I actually take to be the main purpose of this letter. I I really want to set the stage once again uh, for those things because I think they're very important to what Paul is saying in our text for the day. I want you to remember, I want you to, uh, to even feel the, the weight and the immensity of the, the entire thrust of this letter once again before we dive into this text. So, so you might remember me drawing your attention repeatedly over and over and over again to the three main issues that the Apostle Paul is going to address in this letter. Okay, Issue number one In chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, issue number 1 is this issue of self-centeredness and pride. That's issue number 1. He addresses that. Uh, Issue number 2 that the Apostle Paul addresses in chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, is this issue of complaining and arguing. So you have self-centeredness and pride as one issue. You have complaining and arguing as another dual issue, you could say. And then issue number three in chapter four, verses two through three, which is kind of where we're at today, is disagreement and division. So those are the issues. You may also recall me drawing your attention to three remedies. There are three remedies that the Apostle Paul gives for those three main issues. Remedy number one, remedy number one, in verses five through eight of chapter two. Remedy number one is to put on the mind of Christ. It's to think like Christ. That's remedy number one. Remedy number two, out of chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, remedy number two is to work out your own salvation in Christ. Work out your own salvation in Christ. And then remedy number three, which we're going to look at uh, today, in chapter 4, verses 1 and verses 4 through 7, 
Remedy number three is to stand firm in the joy of Christ. So, so those are the main issues, and those are the main remedies to those issues. Now, you may also recall uh, my continual uh, week-by-week uh, reminder that I believe that the Apostle Paul has kind of a singular theme or a singular purpose that is threaded throughout the letter to the Philippian church. Now, there are various different themes. In fact, some scholars believe it's very hard to nail down a singular theme. I have taken a position where I believe there is a singular theme with many other themes and then main issues as well as main remedies. That's, that's kind of the way I come at the book of Philippians. And so, therefore, I've been saying week to week, I want to remind you once again, but the singular purpose, I believe, is Paul's exhortation in chapter 1, verse 27, where in, in, in my summary, he says, live your lives as citizens of heaven in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so now, now that you have those main points, those, those remedies, and then that kind of singular purpose by which all the rest flows out of, I want... I want you to shift your thinking for a minute. I want you to shift your mind. And I want you to think about the strategic nature of writing a letter such as this to someone that you love and care for deeply. Think about what it's like to write a letter to someone that you love and care for deeply. You don't just pick up the pen and write whatever comes to mind. Not a letter like this, anyways. Not, not a letter that has clear purpose and, and clear intent. A letter that is designed to address certain specific issues. No. No, you don't just write flippantly. You take your time. You envision the issues. You identify the remedies. You clarify the purpose. You, you organize your thoughts in a in a careful and, and thoughtful manner. You, you pray. And then you write. And then you send it. And then you pray some more. And then you agonize a little bit over whether or not your recipient, or, or recipients in this case, will hear what you're saying and put it into action. You don't write a letter like this and pray that the information is merely received well. You pray that the information that you give actually leads to some kind of faithful digestion which then results into godly transformation in people's lives. So back to me uh, chuckling <laughs> a little bit. Um, when I studied this text last week, you don't you don't need me to convince you uh, that the culture and the times that we're traveling through as aliens and as sojourners in this world uh, is absolutely ripe with disagreements and divisions. I mean, that's pretty obvious and pretty clear. I don't think we're living with our heads in the sand in that regard. You probably don't need me to convince you either that the same level of disagreement that we see in our culture the same level of disagreement and division exists in other big, bad churches out there somewhere, whatever and wherever somewhere out there might be in 
your imagination or your experience. But you might need me to convince you that, that maybe you don't, but I think we are in danger here at the well of the same, sometimes very invisible and sometimes oftentimes very visible, heart-corrupting, family-destroying infection of disagreement and division. You may not need me to convince you of this, but I do think it's appropriate for me to remind you of that, that threat. Not that we should live in fear of that, but we should be informed of that, right? That there are untold amounts of opportunities for the gangrene of disagreement and division to seep through the virtual walls of our little church family. And remembering once again that a church is not defined by the walls of a building. So I think there's untold amounts of opportunities for the gangrene of disagreement and division to seep through the virtual, you could say relational, walls of our little church family, no matter how far socially distanced we are. So with those things in front of us, we have to ask this question, where do we find shelter at? Um, I included a link to a song that I, I said in my email to everyone that I have emails for, Include a link to a song called Shelter, which Bryce um, helped by playing before um, I begin to preach. Uh, it's been a song that has been that has given me much um, comfort uh, and strength this week. And as I listen to that song, as I think about this text, I, I begin to, as I think about the culture um, that we're living in, <clears throat> begin to ask that question, like, where do I run to for shelter? Uh, wh where do I run to to insulate myself against the kind of enemies that Paul is talking about here, these, this, in, this enemy of disagreement and division. How, how, do I, how do I find shelter from that? How do I find insulation from that? Where do I run to for protection? Where, where do I hide? What, what fortification do I run to? Now here's Paul's uh, might I even be so bold to say this is God's answer to those questions. I think the simple answer is that we find insulation, we, we find protection, we find shelter, we, we hide, we, we fortify ourselves in the gospel. But what does that mean? <laughs> That's the question. What does that mean? Number one in the text, I, I think I see that we fortify ourselves in peace. Think about that. We fortify ourselves in peace. Verses 2 through 3 is where we'll find this. But when I when I when I think about the concepts of insulation, insulating myself, protection, shelter, hiding, fortification, when I think of those things, I think of snow forts. I know you might laugh a little bit, but I think about snow forts. The things that we built when we were kids. Uh, There's probably some of us as adults that are still building these, but remember when we built snow forts as kids, well, we would use anything we could get our hands on, right? To strengthen the walls of our forts. We, we found pieces of tin, we found hay bales, we found rocks, logs of wood, plywood, anything we could get our hands on to strengthen the walls of our fortress. And then we would pack snow all around these little 
hodgepodge shelters so that we could create these fortified walls that we could hide in, that we could take shelter in, that we could find protection in as we insulated ourselves against the onslaught of the war that was coming against us in the form of snowballs that were hailing down on us from our opponents, our brothers, our sisters, our parents sometimes, our friends. These snow forts that we made when we were kids, these, these, these little fortifications, they weren't, they weren't fortifications of peace. They were fortifications of war, offense and defense. So there's something important there. They weren't fortifications of peace. They were fortifications of war, offense and defense. The reality is this. Um, I think the way that we've been shaped to do life in, in the culture that we currently live in, that we have grown up in, the culture that we live in has, has, does shape us. We want to be culture shapers, but there is a reality that the culture that we live in does shape us. It goes both ways. Everything that we are experiencing right now, two days before a presidential election day, everything we're experiencing right now is alarming. Um, the air is filled with wartime tension. We have this in invisible enemy that some of us don't really believe is all that dangerous. Others of us who have experienced it believe that it's a little more dangerous than our brothers and sisters think it is. Some people believe masks are good safety measures. Others believe they're not. Uh, and here's the thing. You don't, you don't have to be in an all-out snowball war to, to recognize what someone else's fortification looks like after just a few short moments in conversation with them. In those, those few moments of conversation, you, you hear what somebody longs for the most. Um, you hear what makes them complain. You hear what makes them angry. You hear what makes them run their lives on half empty as they fight for what they believe is right. And in the midst of the conversation, I mean, it becomes really apparent um, for you, I'm sure. You've had conversations where in those conversations, it becomes apparent for you that you don't, there's things that you don't like um, about the way they built their fort. And, and you learn what you think you want to do different as you build yours. In this day and age, uh, I think that we are in desperate need of the fortification of peace. That's really what I want to say. <coughs> We're in desperate need of the fortification of peace. But, but the problem with that is that we get duped into believing that when we win the fight, when, when things go back to normal, when the virus goes away, or, or it finally gets proved that it's just a big political hoax, or... Uh, when masks are finally proven to be helpful or not helpful, um, when, when our political leader wins um, in, in these places, that's when we're going to finally have some peace. We get duped into thinking that at some level of our psyche. If, if not, then, I, 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 then you're really immune um, to what it means to be human. <laughs> it's a false peace. It's a false piece because the, the Bible that, that we read tells us that nothing in this life is going to satisfy us. Our Bibles tell us that we are aliens, um, sojourners in a foreign land, foreign world. We don't belong here, we belong in heaven. There's the crazy reality that 
I think this is exactly what is happening in the church at Philippi. And this is why Paul says this. As I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So what you have here is you have two Christian women who are fighting about something. They're hunkered down in their bunkers. They're hiding out. They're lobbing bombs at each other. Well, they're, they're, they're well insulated behind their walls of self-protection. They've, they've taken shelter behind whatever their part of the disagreement was. It was an all-out war in the Philippian church. And it certainly wasn't the fruit of living your life as a citizen of heaven in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What these two women needed was the fortification of peace. Listen, you don't fight the cultural warfare of fear with more fear. You fight fear with peace. You don't fight division, disagreement with fear. You fight it with peace. Have you found yourself in need of this kind of shelter lately? In need of peace? See, think with me about this. Can you imagine being these two women? If you slow down a little bit, you think about this letter. Imagine being these two women, Euodia and Syntyche. Having this letter read the first time, you could say in a Sunday morning church gathering. Getting read to them for the first time. You're one of these women. You're excited to hear from the Apostle Paul. Right? He's in prison. He's, hey, to you, he's like a hero. Maybe you're expecting to hear him explain how you can armor up. Go to war. Change the culture. Overthrow the Roman government. The Roman guards. You're expecting maybe he would say something like that. Might even expect him to say something like, it's time to go to war with those heretical religious leaders that have been after you guys. The, the Judaizers. Those bad guys who put me in prison in the first place. Maybe, maybe that's part of your expectation. But instead of all that, as you're listening to this letter read, for the first time, again, you're hearing it for the first time, as you're hearing this letter for the first time being read, what's happening is, is Paul is not talking about any of those things at all. He's actually talking about living your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And you keep thinking, when's he going to get into it? When's he really going to get into it? When, when do we get to go fight? Because that, that's going to be, that's going to be the way that Paul's going to say that we should live our life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. We fight. You're listening to this letter read again for the first time. You're one of those women. You're in division. You're in disagreement with this other woman across the room. You're listening to this letter being read first time. He, instead of talking about all the things you thought he was going to talk about, he's talking about different things. He's, he's talking about self-centeredness and pride. You're taking notes. He's talking about complaining and arguing. You're shocked. You're taking notes. He's giving you these, these basic instructions, these remedies. He, he, he's giving you these instructions to, to put on the mind of Christ. 
to, to work out your salvation in Christ. And he, he describes the humility of Christ. He describes that humility of Jesus as this example of what this gospel-honoring life would look like, right? And then he even gives you these human examples, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And then he even works through giving you the example of himself. You're taking notes like crazy in your little parchment, or whatever it is that you carry around then. Taking notes about what Paul has recently said about pursuing the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And suddenly changes his tone. Paul's tone completely changes as after he talks about that pursuing that upward call and he, he falls into tears, literal weeping tears as he writes over the brothers that he has lost in this journey. And he proclaims in that same moment, he proclaims his deep love for you. He proclaims his, his deep joy in serving you. He, he proclaims his deep joy, his longing to see you with this resolute command. Stand firm in the joy of the Lord. And then, and then you, you're taking notes. Suddenly there's this long pause. This quiet moment that happens. You stop taking your notes and you, and you glance up for just a brief uh, minute um, to see what's going on. The pastor who's, who's reading this letter, he's, he's quiet. He's looking down at this letter. And you start to look around the room See what everybody else is doing. See what's going on. And you're, when you glance up, just for that brief moment, your eye catches the eye of the woman across the room that you have been in disagreement with for a very long time. The one that you're walking in division with. The whole church family with you knows it. You can't, you can't bear the thought anymore of that. And so you... You look at the pastor who, who was reading the letter because you remember that he had paused and that he's not reading. So you're, you're curious now. I wonder why he stopped reading. Remember, you're hearing this for the first time. We're looking at this from the outside. We already know what happens. You put yourself in that woman's shoes. As, as you look up the pastor, you notice that he's looking at you nervously. His eyes keep darting back and forth uh, between you and her. And he begins to read again, and you hear your names. Euodia, Syntyche. Agree in the Lord. Receive help from those around you. You've fought alongside of me for the sake of the gospel, along with others. Don't, don't fight each other. Fight together. How crazy would this moment have been for you? How convicting would it be to be confronted personally in front of everyone in the church family like that? Here's the reality according to scholars. Paul uses a gladiator term when he describes these fighting women who had fought alongside of himself. They were, 
warrior princesses in his mind. But the reality is that these two fighting women had begun to fight each other and their conflict was jeopardizing the witness of the very gospel for which they had fought. You see, here's the thing. Those who follow hard after Christ live with tensions and troubles that the uncommitted heart knows absolutely nothing about. But it doesn't mean that those who fight hard don't also fight wrong sometimes. Author um, Kent Hughes um, makes this really interesting poetic note. He says this, he says, to live above with the saints we love. Oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> Isn't that true? See, what Paul is commanding these women to do is to give up their fortified positions. He's, he's, command, he's not recommending, he's commanding them to quit sheltering in their disagreements. To quit hiding behind their agendas. To quit insulating themselves in the midst of the division. He's, he's literally commanding them to agree and to think the same thing. And in so doing that, they would fortify themselves together in the bond of peace. I just want to ask you, do you need to hear this today? I can't tell you whether you do or not. But do you need to go to someone and make peace? Do you need to go to someone and take shelter in the fortification of that peace? Okay, can I just remind you that the, the cross of Jesus Christ, in the cross of Jesus Christ, we're giving a vertical and a horizontal kind of a peace. Uh, the peace that we have vertically with our Father and the peace that we have horizontally with our brothers and our sisters. The symbol of that vertical and that horizontal peace is just like the cross that is behind me. Those beams, the vertical and the horizontal beams, they're a great reminder for me to chase the peace of Christ. And then extend that peace to others so that others can take shelter in my fortress of peace right alongside me as we weather the craziness of the culture around us. <coughs> Second thing that I see in the text is that we fortify ourselves in joy. We fortify ourselves in joy. Now, as we transition to thinking about the fortification of joy, this fortified position of joy, I think it's appropriate to ask, what is it that has caused you to lose your joy lately? What has your heart and your mind been focused on lately that has left you worn out, left you fearful or anxious or doubting or depressed or angry? What is it? I could imagine that the two fighting women in this text today, I can imagine that they probably weren't 
fighting from a position of joy, a shelter of joy, the hiding place of joy, the insulation of joy, the protection of joy. This is why Paul instructs them, not once but twice, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. This isn't the first time that Paul has run the notes of joy. In fact, it's approximately the 14th to 15th times that he mentions the word. According to one author, joy, joy in the Philippians, uh, the Philippian church is a fighter's defiant commitment to nevertheless, I will rejoice despite my circumstances. That's the kind of joy all throughout Philippians. It's not this happy, fluffy, rainbows and unicorns kind of a joy. It's a fighting, defiant commitment to nevertheless, I will rejoice despite my circumstances. Yes, we, we really should rejoice in affliction, as it is twice stated, for emphasis from the imprisoned Paul. Do you want to be joy-filled? in the midst of affliction, in the midst of a really trying year? Do you want the strength to cling to joy despite your circumstances? Nehemiah 8.10, it's a passage I've referenced numerous times in this series. It's a passage that reminds us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Joy is found in our salvation. See, in this world of trouble, this world of woes, you might say, God's Word commands us to embrace a defiant, nevertheless, I will rejoice always. Because I must rejoice. Because I may rejoice. Because rejoicing in the Lord is not a luxury. It's a necessity. See, he who rejoices in the Lord always will stand firm in the peace of God, even when disagreement and division threatens the gospel witness of the church. So, do you need to be reminded of the joy of your salvation today? Do you need to be reminded that you and I did nothing to gain the salvation we've been given? That ultimately the only right that we have the only thing we are entitled to is death and separation from God forever. And yet God in His mercy reached out to His enemies, you and me, through the cross of His Son, Jesus Christ, so that you and I might come to Him and be saved and reconciled to God the Father. Look to the cross. Look to the cross if you need joy, if you need peace, look to the cross and the empty tomb. Look to the return, the promised return of Jesus, my friends, for, for, for however long that it takes you to have joy seep back into your heart and your mind. Set your minds on things above and not on this earth. And here's what will happen. You will be filled with joy gradually as you take shelter in, as you hide out in, as you insulate yourself in, as you find protection in the fortress of salvation's joy. 
third thing that we notice in the text is that we fortify ourselves in reasonableness. We fortify ourselves in reasonableness. Well, the one thing I know and have experienced often, and I'm sure you have too, is that when disagreements get out of hand, it's usually because someone or both parties become really unreasonable. Unreasonable expectations, unreasonable desires, unreasonable presuppositions, big word. My friend Eric loves that big word. Unreasonable emotions, like the list goes on and on. The problem is that we can be very unreasonable people sometimes because we're human. And to be human is to be sinful. To be sinful is to be broken. And to be broken means that we are unreasonable at times. Probably more times than most of us want to admit. We make mountains out of molehills. Blame our opponents for not seeing through our lenses the same way that we do. We agree with the defense lawyer deep inside of us who tells us that we are right and justified in our opinions and our positions. We also listen to the prosecuting attorney inside of us that tells us that our opponents are just flat stupid and wrong. And though we have the Spirit of God, who actually is very reasonable, always, though we have the Spirit of God inside of us who is reasonable, we're not always reasonable. Then, instead of being fortified by the Spirit's reasonableness, we become fortified by our self-centeredness and our pride and our complaining and our arguing. And this is why Paul says, In verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Let me say it again. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Some might ask, well, what's the context of everyone? Does everyone mean everyone in the church? Or does everyone mean everyone as in everyone? I would encourage you to go study that. The Lord is at hand. In other words, Paul is saying, fortify yourself inside the walls of a reasonable attitude because the Lord is near. He will return soon. And the reality of His nearness, (coughs) the reality of His return makes all of this possible to perform. The actual meaning of the word that we have for reasonableness could be rendered a few different ways. It could be reasonable, it could be soft, it could be gentle, or it could be moderate. Different versions hold different interpretations. I would just say that it's best to render the word as reasonable, soft, gentle moderation. Reasonable, soft, gentle moderation. You could say reasonably soft and gently moderate. A few different ways. doesn't matter. Jesus, though, when I look at Jesus, Jesus 
was reasonable. His opponents seemed reasonable. They seemed logical. Jesus was reasonable. He was soft. He was gentle. He was moderate. Even when his temper flared, to the extent, contextually in Philippians, to the extent that he did not grasp for and did not fight for his own rights. According to Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, he laid his rights down. A rejoicing, gentle spirit. I think it's the healing balm to a disagreeing and divided church. And, and it's a breath of fresh air for an out-of-control, disagreeing, and divided, polarized culture. That's the vision that I think I would want us to have for our church, is that we would be a breath of fresh air for an out-of-control, disagreeing, and divided culture. See, this, this kind of thing necessarily calls for the patient bearing of abuse as Christ's followers in our culture. At the end of the day, we must live in the protection and the insulation and the, the hiddenness and the safety of the fortress of reasonableness. And here's the thing. What, 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 what is it that keeps me reasonable? What is it that kind of restrains me from not being reasonable? What keeps me reasonable is the knowledge that God is as close, closer than my own breath inside of a mask. And is that close? And he will return soon. I want to be ready. So therefore, I, I want to live in the fortress of reasonable, soft, gentle moderation. Where does the Holy Spirit want to gut check you on this today? Would the Lord confirm to you that your expectations and your desires and your presuppositions and your emotions and your defense attorney and your prosecuting attorney are all reasonable? They're all reasonably soft and gentle and moderate as you seek to live a manner as a citizen of heaven that is worthy of the gospel. You know, thankfully, I think I would say that the vast majority of our church family fits well in this category. Reasonable, soft, gentle, and moderate as we seek to live in a manner as citizens of heaven that is worthy of the gospel. But it's still a good question for all of us to ask, even with that kind of encouragement from me, it's good for us all to ask, where do I need to grow in this area of being reasonable? Where do I need to grow in this area of being reasonable? <clears throat> Move on to number four. Number four, we, we fortify ourselves in prayer. We fortify ourselves in prayer. Back to the storyline, if I put myself in Euodia and Syntyche's shoes, I would be quite nervous. After getting named for my disagreement, my complaining, my arguing, my pride, my self-centeredness, I'd probably be a little worried uh, after getting named like that, confronted like that in front of the entire church family. Probably be more than a little worried or nervous. No doubt the, the Philippians, the entire church, they really had just as much to be worried about in their day 
as we do, poverty, hunger, ostracism, enemies inside and outside the church, people provoking them harmfully, destructively. He had heretics. Most of this is alluded to in the, in the text. Even uh, one commentator even made the comment, um, they even had a, a Roman city hall. <laughs> they had a lot to be worried about. And these two women in the church who were arguing, disagreeing, they definitely had much to be worried about, I would assume, after being named like that. But Paul doesn't let it go. Paul gets right after it. Gets right after it, like just like a really, really good shepherd. He, he instructs them to what? Verse, verse 6, instructs them to not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, they were to fortify themselves in prayer so that they wouldn't give in to worry, doubt, and fear. This is just an echo of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, right? In Matthew 6, Jesus tells His followers to not worry. Don't worry, because to worry is to be like the pagans who can't pray with thanksgiving, according to Romans 1 and 1 Timothy 3. Instead, followers of Christ are to remember how God cares for what? The birds and the flowers. We're to remember that when we're tempted to worry and we find ourselves living in anxiety. In that moment, Euodia and Syntyche, who no doubt would have been extremely worried. Paul doesn't pat him on the back and go, oh, well, don't worry, though. It'll be okay for you. Don't worry, though. It's not a big deal. Don't worry. You're just a sinner. That's not the kind of placid, fake psychobabble that Paul gives, doesn't give that. No, he gives gospel, right? Reminds us that God cares for the birds and the flowers. Reminds us. It's a throwback, right, to Jesus' words. How do you think about this? Can you imagine, can you imagine the conversations that take place among the birds when they observe the worrying that happens inside of us that drives our disagreements and our division? Instead of thanksgiving and prayer? Can you imagine the conversations that happens among the birds when they know they're sustained by nothing but God alone? And here we are, creating the image of God. And instead of just trusting Him, we give in to our anxiety and our prayers get driven by anxiety. Our our relationships with others get driven by anxiety and fear rather than being driven by thanksgiving and prayer. See, so what's got you so worked up lately that you have not returned to the Lord in this attitude of grateful prayer? How wonderful would it be for all of us in this season to just return to the shelter, the, the hiddenness, the, the protection, the insulation of the fortress of prayer. Notice the fifth and final thing in the text out of verse 7. It's interesting. We, we fortify ourselves in peace again. Fascinating. We fortify ourselves in peace again. See, Paul's concept of peace, it acts like a fortified north and a fortified south wall of an army garrison. He bookends everything that he says with extra layers of peace because he knows that the world 
that we live in is full of anything but peace. This is why he reminds the Philippians that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Preach that text for days. Fill entire books with commentary on that one phrase. Notice, notice, notice how he says that the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. So this is just a simple reminder that the peace of God is the only thing that will protect, the only thing that will hide, the only thing that will insulate, the only thing that will keep our hearts and our minds safe from the war of disagreements and division that lamb blast us daily, not just from outside, but within. Also notice that God's peace, he says, surpasses understanding. There's not a one of us that can say that we understand what's happening in our world today with complete certainty, unless we are self-centered, pride-filled, complaining arguers who always think we know everything, which I'm guilty of at times. Maybe not you, but I know I'm guilty of that sometimes. I'm sure you probably are too. But here's the thing, there's, there's no peace into, in deceiving myself into thinking that I know everything. There, there will always be this voice inside of my heart and my mind that reminds me that I am not God. That's a, a little known fact that would curb a lot of disagreement and division today. God's peace transcends my understanding. And if you aren't full of peace today, it might be because you believe that you know it all. And it might be because you don't think that you lack understanding. A true peace is found in Christ alone. A weak can be fortified within the garrison walls of the embodied and gifted peace of the cross of Jesus Christ, according to John 14 and Ephesians so, so what lies have you bought into, hook, line, and sinker, that you think, this is where I'm going to find peace? If I could just dot, dot, dot. If they would just dot, dot, dot. If this situation would just dot, dot, dot. If that circumstance would just dot, dot, dot. If our country would just dot, dot, dot. If my friends would just My husband, my wife, my kids, dog, car, bank account, dot, dot, dot. If I could just, where peace would be. What what lies have you bought hook, line, and sinker? What, 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 What are you so certain that you have figured out that really only the Lord could know? Could it be that maybe you would find that fortress of peace, once again, if, if you just gave it up, recognized your limitations that you are not God. And if you admitted that you really don't know, while well, trusting that God does know and that he is actually good. Because oftentimes when I begin to live in that realm of thinking that I know everything, thinking I'm going to find peace if I could just dot, 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 most often it's because deep down inside I still struggle to believe and trust that God is good. By way of application and short conclusion, 
the church, especially in this day and age, um, ought to have a different uh, otherworldly, heavenly presence than, than what we see between Syntyche and Euodia. The culture around us that we live in uh, is building its garrisons, lobbing bombs all over the place. There are many in the church that are doing this too. You can see that all over social media. All under the banner of fighting for the truth. It ought not to be so among us. It should not be known for, by everyone for self-centeredness or pride or complaining or arguing or disagreements or division. We should be known for how we put on the mind of Christ should be known for how we work out our salvation in Christ, should be known for how we stand firm in the joy of Christ as we seek to live our lives as citizens of heaven in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, here's my final word. Here's, here's the truth that I would fight for. According to the Bible, clear in the book of Philippians all throughout, we can find insulation, we can find protection, we can find shelter, we can find safety as we fortify ourselves in the gospel. When we do this, we fortify ourselves in the gospel by running to a four-walled fortress of peace twice over, reasonableness, and prayer. Say that again. You envision four walls. Two of those walls are peace. And then you have joy, reasonableness, and prayer. And I think that the place that we find that gospel fortress, as I say every week, is at the foot of a bloody cross where Jesus was torn, beaten, brutally for his enemies. He laid down his rights and for the joy that was set before him, he ran to that cross to give himself as a sacrifice on behalf of his enemies. In the doorway of an empty tomb, where he rose three days later and left that tomb empty, so that we then might live in the power, presence, a transforming spirit of God, who was given to us that we might be sons and daughters of God. And we live as aliens in this life, in this world, whose home is not here, but it's actually in heaven. Therefore, we live in the light of the hope of heaven and Christ's return. Amen? We pray. Father, thank you for your word. I admit, Father, that I am nothing much more than a really broken and sinful man who gets the privilege of preaching this word day in and day out, and yet you constantly do things that constantly amaze me in that you would take an imperfect person. Just like the writer of Philippians, you would take an imperfect man like Paul, have him write your word, and have an imperfect person like me preach your word to imperfect people who would hear it. I pray, Father, that you would transform each of us through it to the image of your son, Jesus, so that we might be true salt and light in an increasingly hostile world that is living with a platter full, a plate full 
of disagreements and division. Pray, Father, that you would help us live our lives as citizens of heaven in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.